I'm Alex Halberstadt, senior writer at the Museum of Modern Art. When people think about the artist and writer David Wonorovich, who died in 1992 at the age of 37 from AIDS-related illness, they often think about his political activism or the confrontational spirit of his work. But in 2016, in her book, The Lonely City, author Olivia Lang wrote about his work through a different prism, the prism of loneliness and isolation. On this episode of Magazine Podcast, Lang spoke to me from her home in London about the work and legacy of this visionary artist. Hi, Olivia. It's wonderful to be speaking with you. I wanted to begin this conversation by asking why you chose to include David Vonorovich in a book about loneliness. That is such a good question. I think when I started to write The Lonely City, I was sort of, you know, in my head auditioning all kinds of different artists. And I knew people like Edward Hopper were obviously going to be in the book. A friend of mine said, you know, you should really look at David Wonorovich's work. There's an archive in New York City and you should go and have a look at it. And I went and I looked at the magic box, which is sort of a piece that he made during the AIDS era. And it's an orange box and he'd filled it with all kinds of magical objects. So there's like toys in it and jewellery and a little cotton snake and a tiny little metal ambulance on wheels. Immediately, there was something about seeing this sort of almost childlike and quite tender, but also very strange and idiosyncratic collection of objects that made me think, this is somebody who's engaging with using objects to mediate feelings, using objects to think around feelings of loss and isolation and grief and terror and all of the enormous and terrifying feelings of the AIDS crisis. So I got interested and I started looking at his work and the next thing I saw was the Rambo photographs and these are the photographs of various men of Wonorovich's acquaintance, lovers, friends, walking through areas of New York City with a mask of the poet Arthur Rambo and they're in places that he had spent time as a kid, as a young man who was homeless, who was from an abusive family, who was deeply, deeply isolated and estranged. So immediately from the beginning, he was somebody that was sort of using art making as a way of connecting with his former self, with other people who might be like him. And that sense of art as a communication device was just, it was electrifying to me. Wonorovich was immediately electrifying to me. During this pandemic, many of us have just gone through two years of enforced isolation. Many mental health professionals have written about an epidemic of loneliness. And I'm wondering about the ways that art and writing can be an antidote to loneliness and about those imaginary disembodied relationships we all have with artists and writers that can make us feel more alive and less alone. I'd like to read a passage from The Lonely City about your personal relationship with David Wojnarowicz. In Close to the Knives, he recalled how it had felt as a child to hear other kids screaming faggot at one another, how, quote, the sound of it resonated in my shoes, that instant solitude, that glass wall no one else saw. Reading that sentence made me realize how much of his account reminded me viscerally of scenes from my own life. Reminded me, in fact, of the precise sources of my own isolation, my sense of difference, alcoholism, homophobia, the suburbs, the Catholic church, people leaving, people drinking too much, people losing control. I hadn't experienced anything like the violence of David's childhood, but I knew what it was like to feel unsafe, to pass through chaotic and frightening scenes, to have to find a way of coping with simmering rage and fear. Olivia, can you talk about what you personally found so relatable 
and perhaps welcoming in David Wojnarowicz's work? It's funny, um, when you started asking that question, it reminded me that I once did a radio interview and the interview was like, you know, you kind of feel like you're friends with all of these artists, but they're dead. You're actually on your own. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thanks. That's, that's really nice. Because to me, that missed the point entirely. You know, what Wonorovich wanted more than anything, and he says this very explicitly to Nan Golden in an interview in Bond magazine, what he wanted was for his work to connect with people that he might never encounter, that he might have died long before they lived, for his work to sort of go out like a message in a bottle, like a sort of frequency that only certain people can hear. And that was my experience of art. The kind of encounters, meetings, sense of emotional permissiveness that I found in other people's art was extraordinarily, I hate the word healing, but it was it was healing. It was exciting. It was companionable. And particularly Wonorovich was very companionable. And I think you're right. It's because there are similarities in our backgrounds. There are similarities in our sense of alienation and anger. And to find somebody articulating things that you've experienced but you feel are a source of your difference and to realise that somebody else shares that. Well, I mean, that takes a huge burden off somebody's shoulders of how isolated they feel. You write so movingly about the way Wojnarowicz uses photographs in his art, and particularly those giant figures that he spray-painted in the abandoned buildings on the West Side Piers in Lower Manhattan. To, quote, inscribe himself into the fabric of the place, building up his identity and presence in layers. Can you talk about this idea of how he used art to create indelible traces of himself in a society that sometimes seems so intent on erasing it? Do you think this is one of the ways his art functions? Yeah, absolutely. And for me, that's one of the most exciting ways that his art functions. And I think that's why when you see a sort of retrospective painting show of Wonorovich, it kind of misses the point. The paintings are great. They're terrific. But his work really extends beyond that. And his sense of almost sort of alchemically transforming the city that he's in into a dream landscape that he wants to inhabit, that he's excited by, that sense of turning it into something that he needs. That's such a powerful impulse of art making to make the thing that you're lacking. And I think he makes himself a hospitable city when he's actually living in a very dangerous, frightening and inhospitable city. He doesn't have a lot of nurture, but he turns the piers into this space of nurture. He makes it a space of beauty. He makes it a space of sexual encounter and plenitude. There's clearly such a kinship between what he's doing and what Basquiat is doing, the same sort of sense of somebody writing their own sort of inscrutable language onto the city. And other people are clocking it all the time. People would see David's vomiting cows. People would see Basquiat's wonderful, strange phrases and wonder about that person. So it it is a way of sort of almost sending out these secret messages that certain people are going to pick up on and other people are going to disregard or not see at all. It will be absolutely invisible to them. The West Side Piers, where Wojnarowicz spray-painted his murals, were places where queer men cruised for sex. And cruising represented a certain kind of sexual freedom that could be found in Times Square and other places in New York City. There's this really interesting tension in Wojnarowicz's work around sex. On the one hand, it's a method of finding community and connection But on the other hand, it's this force of shame and isolation that in that passage I read, he described as a glass wall that no one else could see. Can you talk about all the ways that sex figures in his work? 
Yeah, I was very drawn by his sexual writing. I was very drawn by that sense of him as a person who's kind of cruising the city. He's looking for sexual encounters, but there's something kind of voracious and isolated and dreamy about him as well. He's writing everything down. He's recording it all. He's not absolutely in the moment that he's living because he's also really trying to capture it and convey it. So there's something already that's slightly distanced from the experience that he's having. Him and Samuel Delaney, I'd say, are two of the best people at writing about that kind of anonymous sexual encounter and the sort of possibilities of violence, but also the possibilities of tenderness within it. He's undeceived about it. He knows that those encounters can become very ugly, but he knows they can also contain intense beauty. And he records all of that very even-handedly. What's interesting about your question, I think, is that he's also somebody who really, in those early years in his 20s, is terrified of intimacy. He comes from an abusive family, and he's not really capable of that kind of intimacy. And those kind of sexual encounters are fantastic for him. They're a space where he can have as much sort of love and tenderness as he's willing to allow himself. And I think that really changes dramatically when he meets Peter Hujar and that relationship, which is a relationship as lovers and then a relationship as friends, almost brothers, almost father and son. That relationship enlarges his capacity for love so clearly that he gets so much from having a person who accepts him, believes in him, has faith in him, and is utterly steady about him, is absolutely committed to loving David in whatever form and shape that takes. So I think there's a lot of sort of complicated things going on with David and sex as well. There are ways in which it's a path to escape yourself. And sometimes that's a brilliant thing as well. I've never thought about it quite that way. But of course, cruising was a way of modeling intimacy without submitting to it completely. Yeah, it's risky, but there are ways in which it's also avoiding risks, the risks of being rejected, the risk of getting close to somebody and then them turning out not to be who you think. All of those sort of risks of intimacy, it's a way of forestalling. Close to the Knives is one of the books that really changed my life. I first read it as a college student in 1991 when it first came out. And I remember thinking that I'd never read the experience of queerness and the experience of being an outsider of any kind described with such empathy and rage. I thought about that book again in 2018 when I was walking through the retrospective of David Wojnarowicz's visual art at the Whitney. Having now thought about it for a long time, I've really come to think that David Wojnarowicz was as good of a writer as he was a visual artist. Can you talk about the relationship between Wojnarowicz's visual art and his writing and all the ways that they coexist and inform each other? Well, yeah, first of all, I absolutely agree with you because he is such a multidisciplinary artist. He works in film as well. He works in photography. But writing is what he wanted to do from the beginning. He saw himself in his 20s as a writer. That's what he thought his, <laughs> I mean, career is a funny word to use with Wojnarowicz because he never thought about his career. But that's what he thought his sort of forte or his um, path was going to be. He was always writing. His whole life was spent writing down little scenarios, writing down monologues for different characters, making texts for the films that he was making. So language and the written word is really crucial to his practice. He was somebody that recorded tape journals, particularly in two different phases in his 20s and then as he was ill. And they're the ground out of which Close to the Knives came. And I think that sense of intimacy, immediacy, um, somebody telling you the thoughts that are sort of washing up within them into your ear is the feeling that you have with his writing. It feels astoundingly close to you. It feels like he's telling you things sort of whispering and then raging, then absolutely incandescent with anger. And 
I'm not sure that he always reaches that sort of fluidity and control in all of his paintings. I think the technicality of his writing is really extraordinary. It's really not until later that people really started to take in how powerful his work was, because I think if you work in many different disciplines, it's really easy to think those bodies of works are smaller than they are. Absolutely. And I think the craft of his writing is just extraordinary and sometimes gets lost in the discussion of what the writing is about. Yeah, and it's not just roar. It's not just a sort of cry from the heart of anger and pain. It's much more thoughtful and original and strange than that, I think. Yeah, and crafted, deeply crafted. There's so many artists that have made celebrated work about the AIDS era. Some that come to mind are Felix Gonzalez Torres, Robert Gober, Nan Golden, Keith Haring, Jenny Holzer. But when I think about Wojnarowicz, he stands a bit apart from those contemporaries, both in the breadth of his project and the urgency and emotional register of his work. Why do you think David Wojnarowicz remains such a singular figure? I think this is where the sort of the coolness or the premeditatedness kind of falls away. His work around the AIDS crisis is made out of a sense of absolute desperation and terror and fury and also love. There's so much love in those works. There's so much love in the pieces about Peter Hooja or in the Smell of Flowers While You Can piece that ends the Waterfront Journals about somebody who was enormously attached to and interested in the world and sees its beauty and sees its ugliness and is capable of conveying all that at the moment that they're losing it. So you get scenes of real grief and beauty and then just so much anger and listing of the enemies, the people in the Catholic Church, the people in the Republican Senate, that all of these different figures. So he changes his frequency really rapidly. It's not like there's a type of work that he's making about AIDS. He is a person confronting his own mortality, losing friends and loved ones, and throwing everything he has at trying to record that, trying to change that. It's I think impossible not to be moved by those works. I haven't encountered anybody in all the sort of different encounters I've had about Wonrovich who haven't just been astounded by, even if they don't like his art, astounded by the way that he is so honest, he's so naked, he allows his emotions to be so visible. So in the larger body of work around the AIDS crisis, I think he's one of the most important artists of that era. Shortly after Close to the Knives came out, David Wojnarowicz had a conversation with his friend, the photographer Nan Golden, in which she asked him what he would like for his work to accomplish. And here's what he says to her, quote, I want to make somebody feel less alienated. That's the most meaningful thing to me. I think part of what informs this book is the pain of having grown up for years and years, believing that I was from another planet. We can all affect each other by being open enough to make each other feel less alienated. And that answered, there is such a strong and naked desire to reach others through his work, and maybe even to heal their shame and their isolation. Do you think that's an accurate or romantic reading of his intentions? I think there's totally truth to that. And I also think David Wojnarowicz was somebody who struggled with relationships in his real life. In Cynthia Carr's fantastic biography, Fire in the Belly, so many of his friends attest to the kind of fights they had with him or severances of relationships because he found them too difficult and too challenging. And I think there is a way in which that sort of artist, that sort of paranoid or damaged artist can house the 
best aspects of themselves inside their work, that those desires for closeness or for um, alleviating the suffering of others can live inside their work. And that can be experienced by other people. I mean, you know, if that's a romantic reading of art, then that's the kind of romanticism that I'm very, very deeply invested in. I think that's the point of art. And it's most central point. And Wonorovich is an artist that really possesses that. You know, and I can think of other artists who I really like whose work isn't about that at all. But for him, I think it's all about contact and it's all about a kind of openness and a kind of faith in exposing, showing, sharing these shameful areas. You know, he was somebody who was badly shamed and he was somebody who wanted to say, well, I'm going to talk about anger and I'm going to talk about sexuality and I'm going to talk about desires and I'm going to talk about loss and I'm going to talk about what it's like when you're sick and you're dying. All of those feelings are there sort of hung out for other people to see. And I'm sure that there are audiences who recoil from it or find it too much, but there are other people who instantly can feel where it's coming from, the kind of place it's coming from, and the kind of generosity that is absolutely invested in it. Olivia, for those listeners who are not familiar with Wojnarowicz's work, where would you suggest making that first point of contact? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Well, Close to the Knives is definitely a place to start. And I also think the Rambo photographs, that series of black and white photographs, is they're so beautiful. You really get a sense of his seriousness, his aesthetic qualities. And then something like One Day This Kid as well, which is an image of David as a child and then talks about what this beautiful buck-toothed little boy with his ears sticking out is going to experience. And it lists all of the sort of entrenched state-sponsored homophobia of America in the 1980s. And at the end, it says, and all because he desires to lay his naked body on the body of another boy. And that as a sort of piece of political art, I think, is, you know, astounding, harrowing, painful and idiosyncratic as well. Nothing that David makes is sort of ready-made. None of it is like anybody else's expression of ideas. So, yeah, I think those three things are definitely good places to begin. Thank you, Olivia, so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Thank you.